Hi, I'm Dr. Don Welch, licensed marriage and family therapist, and welcome to the My Therapist Says podcast, where I moderate discussions between various relationship experts from medical doctors to licensed mental health professionals to enrich relationship skills and communication. This podcast seeks to bring healing and hope to what matters most in our lives, our relationships. If you would like even more content or to speak with a therapist, you can visit us at www.enrichingrelationships.org. Thank you and enjoy. So glad to see each and every one of you. This is a very, very special topic dealing with a rebellious teenager. Um, my name is Pastor Don Welch. I'm the counseling pastor here at Skyline Church, and we do welcome you to this event that happens each and every week. And I want to invite you to participate tonight. Some of you that have been here before know that what we do is we make this very interactive. So if you have a three by five card, would you just hold that up real quick? Make sure you have that. I want to invite you, if you would now, to begin thinking about a question that you have about, it could just be child rearing or about you and your mate, or if you're a single parent, how you're functioning with your children. Your question will be hopefully raised tonight. That's our hope is to get to your question and then try to respond uh, to that. So if you would begin writing your question any time during the evening that you're ready for your question uh, to be retrieved or taken from you and, and given to me up front as the moderator, just raise it in the air. Uh, we don't need to practice that, but if you just raise it in the air, that they will retrieve it, bring it to me to the front, and we'll use that as our discussion this evening. So if you would begin writing your questions, thinking about your questions. If at some point you would like to verbalize a statement or a question, just feel free to raise your hand without, there's a hand with a card right up here. If you just raise your hand without a card, we will bring a microphone hopefully to you so that you're able to react and respond to our panel members this evening. This is the first time, and I think now going on three and a half years, that I'm going to be the presenter tonight. My presenter has the flu, and uh, Dr. Diana Shorstrom. And so you have me tonight. I'm thrilled about doing this. It's kind of interesting as we uh, uh, get started in just a moment. Uh, we're on teenagers, and for about 10 years, I actually spoke on teenagers from coast to coast, about 10 to 12 states, some of which I was in many, many times, and enjoy this topic immensely. I was actually the chairman of a department at a sister college to Point Loma Nazarene University called Mid-American Nazarene University, and I chaired their youth ministry program for those years, and this was my specialty. So here we are, and you're going to be hearing a little bit of the overflow. Hopefully it won't be underflow, but overflow in the sense that uh, it's some of the things that I've thought about and worked on for years in the area of working with uh, teenagers. But before we uh, begin tonight, we're going to have a word of prayer, and then I would like to introduce our panel members and uh, we will begin tonight. This should be a very dynamic discussion uh, about teenagers or children. So let's have a word of prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you for the privilege of knowing you and to know children. You love children. In fact, you created them. And as Genesis 1 says, you created them in your image. Thank you so much for that. And as we work together tonight, and those perhaps listening uh, through uh, our website, that you would bless each and every one, and may we be blessed by your presence. We love you, we bless you this night, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Um, again, if you would write your question, just hold it in the air. Apparently, there's at least one person that has that question that you've raised. This can be, there's another hand right here as well. But some of you uh, are very familiar with these two very skilled people, um, Lucretia Lee, and actually she has, uh, we have her uh, bio up, up here, giving background, and her lovely daughter is with her today as well. We're so welcoming her as well. She's sitting so nicely there enjoying this. Such a great parent. I, I'm going to tease about my parenting, which is not so good at times. I'm going to do that a little bit later here. Yours looks superb, actually. So, and uh, right now at this point, <laughs> that's what we as parents say. <laughs> and uh, Vicki Kim, Vicki has been with us before and brings also tremendous in-depth uh, insight, uh, both of which have uh, wonderful husbands, and uh, each of them has a husband, and they are wonderful together, <laughs> and also your children. So they're right in the midst of parenting as well. So we welcome them uh, tonight. If you, if you have your materials that you have, I, I passed out 30 ways to raise your teenager's self-esteem, and I also have parenting your teen in age of opportunity, training the heart kind of a cheat sheet, if you will. You should also have the PowerPoint that begins talking about parenting your rebellious child, and you can see Dr. Diana Shorstrom's name. I'm taking her outline. I've never done this before. You may suggest at the end that I never do it again, but we'll see how it goes here. But I'm excited about her outline that she was going to use tonight. I'm using none, not any of her notes except for my own, but I am using her outline tonight. Mark Twain said it this way. When I was seven, my father knew everything. When I turned 14, my father knew nothing. But when I was 21, I was amazed at how much the old man had learned in just seven years. Don't you love Mark Twain? I love another thing he said. When a child turns 13, put him in a barrel, nail the lid on the top, feed him through the knothole in the barrel. When he turns 16, plug up the knothole. You perhaps have heard that. And I love uh, those uh, descriptions. Some of us are laughing too hard because, or inwardly, because we've had that experience maybe with a teenager in our home. But you know, 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Someone said it this way about teenagers. Teenagers are like a person needing a loan but wishing they were financially independent. There's a connectivity that's happening there. And if you look at your PowerPoint, you'll notice as we move to the, the, the second slide there, we're going to look at some of the reasons possibly for a rebellious teenager. Some of the reasons we can look at first are some chemical reasons that must be, we call it, ruled out. Oftentimes, children, we don't notice this oftentimes, but children can display depression through anxiety, or they can display depression when they're a little irritated with parents. And we are learning, there's much new research about this, suggesting that we may misdiagnose children, and we may have for years. So when we think of looking at a rebellious child or a teenager, we probably need to make sure that they're getting enough sleep, they're getting very good nutrition, that there's not a chemical disruption in their body. And that would mean that you would get a baseline concept from a physician. If you look at what she suggested here, Dr. Shorstrom, there are some things like ADHD, allergies, hypoglycemia, learning dis disabilities, etc., that may be based chemically. So it's very important that we get professional help from a biological scientist who would be a medical doctor, someone that would look even genetically 
uh, for that child if the child is uh, genetically predisposed for a particular uh, ailment. Or a lack of conscience or gifted, I, she said this about the gifted child, gifted children oftentimes manipulate parents. I started my practice years ago in Charter Hospital. There were 127 of these around the United States, one of which here in San Diego, it's now closed, one in uh, uh, Shawnee, Kansas, where I was practicing, and I had one teenager because I was in the adolescent unit for quite some time, myself and a social worker, and we ran that for a while, and I had one young man that he was flipping us off. He was just as ugly as can be. If you want to look at a rebellious teenager, he was the poster child. And as he would act out, we began to ask questions about his family, and at one point with his family, he started finally breaking down, and after a while, he stopped flipping us off and cussing us out and realized that we really were trying to help him. He began to talk about his father, who was a well-known physician in that particular area. And he said to me in tears one day, he said, my dad cares more about his cars and girlfriends than he does about me. And I began to think about this. Ken Canfield, who is now uh, up uh, at Pepperdine University, he was back then in Kansas, not far from where I was practicing. And I called his vice president one day, and I asked him about rebellious teenagers, really. And he said, well, we've stopped measuring how often people meet. We now look at how many minutes per day they meet. And he said it's about 10 minutes that fathers take time with their children, and it's about one meal together per week that they eat together. And I began to think about this. When we talk about rebellious teenagers, we need to think about how are we investing time in our children. The old concept of quality time, that was back in the 70s when we were permissive parenting, which actually raises narcissistic children. You know, there can be a, a Thor parenting, which is actually setting good balance, balance, uh, boundaries, or authoritarian. And authoritarian is that I just take over and it's my will or the highway. How much time are we spending uh, together? This, this uh, gifted child, when it talks about children, often manip manipulate parents. Another part of this, when we sp spend time, I've asked this over the years and I've been able to do some little uh, studies with my students, now 20 years with college students and graduate students, and I'll oftentimes ask this question, how many of you have devotions at home when you were growing up? How many of you? And it's usually about one-tenth of the class. There's usually one out of ten that would say, I have devotions with my family. Then I go further. Did you ever walk in the home and watch your parents praying for you somewhere in the house? And then it gets silent. And then I asked him the third question, when you're out on the sporting field and when you are actually playing an instrument in the band or doing something for the college and there's an audience, who do you look for? And you know the answer. I look for my parents. We have all of these opportunities and even if those are past opportunities, you have opportunity right now because relationships are very fluid. They're either gaining strength or they're losing the wind, if you will, in their sails. So as we look at this, you will notice the third thing she says there is lack of conscience. Signs of this may be poor treatment of animals, destructive, cruel to siblings or peers. We could go to things like Asperger's syndrome and other 
pre-antisocial behaviors of children, that they begin to be cruel to animals and the various things, oftentimes underneath all of that, you begin to see an anxiety element. Somewhere they're not healthily connected to the people in their lives that they really need. Now, some of us here have uh, children. Some of us have grandchildren. Some of us here may not have, or those listening, have any children at all. We all influence children. Here's why. For children, things are caught more than they are taught. They catch things more than what they're told. So if you're modeling as, as a parent, maybe you're a single parent, or if you're married, you're modeling something to them because the greatest gift we can give to a child is how we treat with respect the child's other parent. And so when we look at a lack of conscience, when it's mentioned up there, signs of this poor treatment of animals, destructive, where did they learn that? Where did they learn that particular behavior? I noticed this when, when we were looking at this, possible reasons for rebellious uh, behavior. Um, one police officer, he was one of my students, actually, he became the, the, the police chief of a particular part of the county in which we lived, and he was my student, he was finishing up his degree, and then when he did, he was in his 50s, he became chief of police, and he said what he did with any rebellious teenagers that wanted to date his daughter, he actually did this, he told me he did this, and he's very skilled with his guns and everything else, so he'd lean up, the guy that's dating his daughter, he'd lean up, and he'd whisper in his ear real quickly when they first started dating, are you going to do anything to my daughter that I'll have to kill you for. And I just love that response. And I always ask, what did they do? Some, he said one of them stood up and saluted, yes, sir. And others made all sorts of reactions. But are we setting boundaries for our children? A lot of rebellious children tend to not have healthy boundaries. And they don't have uh, what's set up here, a lack of consistent, if you will, uh, discipline. If you'll notice what uh, Proverbs um, 12, 1 says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. I ask rebellious teenagers over the years, what do you wish for? If you could tell me one thing, and their parents are out of the room, you may not believe this, but when you get right down to it, they would oftentimes say, this is the majority, they would say, I wish my parents or parent had more time for me. You may say that's counterintuitive. That's not true. I've heard it time and time and time again. James Dobson once said years ago, parenting isn't for cowards. It's in the uphill, uphill years with two-year-olds and teenagers and the struggle parents um, face with letting their children grow up. Have you ever had that hard time? Letting children grow up. When it says here, lack of consistent discipline, we have to agree on discipline. Don't we all have a trouble letting children grow up? I still like it when my son, and he did this just this last week, and Robin is here, my wife, that he would walk along and he's holding my hand. He's 11-year-old. Uh, still needing to tell me that he needs discipline. Now, we ran into a problem the other day because we were, Robin and I were trying to discipline because, you know, a therapist should never have two children push each other or throw things at each other, but it happened Sunday night after Monopoly. I was taking the doggy out for its little visit outside, and uh, the action happened. Robin was upstairs, so we had a rather big issue, and so they're grounded now for the rest of their lives, but other than that, we're doing well. But what happened is I came back in, and I started using what I thought was language that was helpful in past. I said this to my son. I said, Daniel, do you see your mother and me 
pushing each other, throwing things at each other, hitting each other. And he looked at me, and these were his words, Dad, you are absolutely creeping me out. My sister and I don't like each other, and we are certainly not married. And I thought, I'm trying to treat him like I've done when he was four or five, right? Look at mom and dad. No, you never do that to mom and dad, right? You never do that to mommy. She doesn't do... But he's now synthetically thinking, and when we're looking at this discipline, my discipline has to change, doesn't it? And I shared a little bit of that with my colleagues, and I think both of you were there this morning. They were laughing at me. I, I, they were laughing at me for my... I said, I have a little bit of poor, uh, poor parenting in this whole process, but... He taught me a lesson, and that is, but discipline is so important um, in, in our children. We're in an age where we haven't quite moved out of the permissive stage, where we're child-centered. Remember, some of us, like my age, over 50, we grew up in adult-centered. You know, children are not to be heard, well, not even seen. So go away kind of a thing. But then we moved to a point where, you know, we have the, which we do, we have uh, the the van where we're chasing our children everywhere we can go and we still do that kind of a thing. But permissive means that we're not disciplining our children. And when we don't do that, what happens is we create somewhat of a narcissistic child. So when we look at this, she has up on her her handout here a lack of consistent discipline. Number five, unresolved feelings in the parent gets transferred onto the child. This is number five in your handout. So unresolved feelings in parent gets transferred onto the child and those feelings get interjected into the child's personality and the child then acts out these feelings. We've begun to name it ADHD or ADD. ADHD with the hyperactive, we can't get the child to sit still. And then as they move into later years, they have to aggressively get those feelings out somehow. And it's really important that we model behavior that we want the child to express. I still remember the commercial that's so powerful. The boy, his father bursts in his room. You've seen it, perhaps. He bursts into his son's room. He says, where did you get this? And he has pot right in his hand. Where did you get this? How did you learn this? Remember this commercial? I learned it from you, Dad. It's really powerful. How are we modeling in this process? So if you look at this, I'm going to wind this down. That, that these unresolved feelings are parent in, in parent gets transferred into the child and these feelings get interjected into the child's personality and then they begin to act out those issues. Number six, parents do not know how to support nor facilitate a healthy discharge of anger in children. I wrote down some things and have some things that talk about this. Listen as a parent, not as a partner. These are ways to de-escalate this. Listen through active feedback. In other words, when they say something, instead of, it really happened, or gasping like I tend to do, Robin has trained me a little better, I'm getting better at this, is to say, now what I heard you say, or or to say back, you're really saying this, right? And you're remaining calm. Because teenagers love, they just love the shock element, right? They just, they shock you, and some of you fall over, pick yourself up, we try again, but listen through active feedback. Listen from unclouded nor colored or tinted glasses of interest. Listen with understanding. Listen for feeling words. Always considering where the the emotions come from. 
I, I saw this one day, I, I did a little research project on particularly boys, and I was asked, okay, when do you have some of the best talks? And they said, and that's why I have a truck, but they said it's when you're in a truck with your son and you're both staring out the window, straight ahead, right? And it was like 92% of conversations happened in those arenas. It should be that we should provide an atmosphere of which we can communicate with our, our children. It may be a truck, uh, maybe not. It may be a place in your home. It may be a place that you go and sit. But to try to provide a way in which you can, can do that. When we look at this, I'm going to wind this down if I can with a couple other things. Um, and I need to move this real quickly. And that is, um, when we look at teens and try to understand them, it's, it's important that we um, offer unconditional love, which is given um, to, to a child. I'm trying to find where this is. Pardon my moving here. Yes, here it is. Enriching these ways. Talk with other parents. These are some suggestions. Talk with your other parents you admire, respect, and trust your teenager. Some of us were at Awana's this last weekend. I learned several new th things and ideas. I came home and shared it with Robin that some of the other parents with whom we were uh, waiting for our children to finish up Awana's, which is Bible quizzing. And we have a wonderful program here uh, if you don't have your child involved. But Awana's is going on upstairs just now as we're here and some of your children are up there. But talk with other parents. Pray for God to give you insight into your teenager. How often are we praying for that? God will give us insight. And when he does give us insight, always ask the question, will my response help this child or help my own needs? Don't we get our needs met by caring for our children? We need to always ask the question, will my response help my child or is it going to help me? Ask more open-ended questions than less specific questions. Now, this one is new. Solicit your teen's opinion about issues that are important to you and them. Sometimes agree to disagree. Encourage their own ideas and opinions that make them unique. A teenager has moved from very concrete black or white thinking to more synthetic. There's kind of in-between. So soliciting their opinion raises their self-esteem. The most healthy children I know and work with are children who have parents who work on self-esteem. Helping them to be able to take initiative, do things on their own, um, be able to be much more self-sufficient. So with that, as uh, an introduction tonight, I um, would like to invite you. It says, need to check for drug abuse or possible sexual abuse. If you have a rebellious teenager, it could be one of those two. And there's some easy ways to do that for even checking drugs and also somehow talking with them have they been in an unsafe place and still building that rapport with them? Well, let's have another word of prayer, and we're going to shift gears. Uh, thank you. I've never tried what I just did, uh, but I, I believe that we've set the tone at least for what we're going to talk about tonight. And let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you again for your presence. And now as we move into discussion, would you bless us, guide us in all that we do, and we'll give you praise. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. If we can have our questions, and apparently there's a lot of them up here, I'll start with one of them and we will uh, get started here. Um, did want to mention the, the handout before I do the 30 ways to raise your teenager's self-esteem. I gave you a, a sheet here that should be helpful. Did everyone receive a copy of that? Anyone not receive that, I should ask. Oh, we've got several over here. I think there were going to be some more copies made. 
Um, so what we'll do is try to have those in the back. Um, am I correct, Donna? We'll have some more copies. Yes, okay. Very good. Let's go to the questions, and we'll jump into our discussion. Thank you. My son is five and very strong-willed and stubborn. How do I or how will we deal with this without breaking his spirit? That's a great question to start off this evening. My son is five, very strong-willed and stubborn. How do I or we deal with this without breaking his spirit? How would you say? Well, we both have very young ones. My little one just turned four, and she's very strong-willed as well. Um, patience, breathing, a mommy timeouts. And sometimes I really do need those. When I can, I really try what, what my husband and I do. If we're getting ready for school in the morning, we do that five days a week, we speak to her as we're rubbing her back to, to wake her up what we're getting ready to do. So we try to give her like, kind of like a plan. We're going to get up. We're going to wash her face. We're going to brush her teeth. Then we're going to have breakfast. And we really, even though she's heard it you know, several times, we do that. I personally try to give her options with her clothes. I'll pick out two outfits. And what, what would you like to wear are your shoes? So what we find with her is that when we can, we really try to like let her know what's going to go on ahead of time. And she has to suggest them sometimes, well, I don't want to have this. I want to have that to eat. And if it's okay with us, we can, we can go ahead and grant that. But we try to get her involved in what's going on as well as try to let her know what's going to go on ahead of time. And that seems to be helpful. I think one thing is also give them something to be strong and passionate about. You know, they... Um, it, it's a good thing, and you know my little daughter, she's she's pretty strong-willed. But a couple months ago, we started taking her out to homeless ministry and just going mm -hmm. around the block and you know giving water and things like that. And it it gave her a vehicle, um, something to be passionate about, something to be excited about. And I think when kids don't have that and they're just kind of you know expected to just be kids, um, there's all this energy and passion you know wanting to come out of them. So. Wonderful, wonderful. I also want to yes, add to that. Please. And in addition, one of the things we do too is that she happens to attend a, um, a Christian preschool. And so she learns about God and they have chapel and things like that. And so she, she learns about God's will. And so sometimes she just doesn't want to do something. And we explain to her that God um, made mommy and daddy put us in a position to care for her and to give her rules to make sure she's going to be okay. And so sometimes we say, God wants you to do it. And she thinks about it. And, you know, like, are you sure? You know, we'll, we'll talk to her. And sometimes she tells us the same thing. God wants you to give me that, that candy. <laughs> you know, I'm like, did he tell you that in the dream? Did you read that? And, you know, she starts laughing. Mm -hmm. But we also try to let her know that what our roles and responsibilities are as parents, which are to keep her safe and to give her good direction. Wonderful. Wonderful. Again, as we begin to discuss these issues, if you have a question you would like to verbalize or even a statement, please raise your hand without a card. Here's the next question. This is a very good question. This happens frequently. What, how do you, what do you do with your teen who constantly lies? This is a constant issue. It's a big issue. First of all, let's try to address the fact, why, why do teens lie? Uh, let me just answer that one. First of all, I've asked hundreds of teens actually this question. And the majority of them say it's easier. That's what they say. It's kind of amazing. I don't know if that's the case for you all, but um, now we can explore it a little more. But what do you do? And there are other reasons, of course. That's not the only one. But what do you do when your teen constantly lies? I kind 
of want to go the other way um, and, and then lead up to this question is I found that teenagers who have really good communication and relationship with their parents um, don't lie as much or, or maybe not at all because they know that their parents are going to listen to them mm-hmm. and they're even willing to take the consequences if it's important to them that the relationship with their parent is maintained. And I've just seen that over and over again. We've been in high school ministry for about 10 years. And as the relationship, as the communication begins to increase with the parents, um, the children just naturally begin to do that because they begin to find joy um, in the relationship with their parents. So I just went about that the other way. Yes. Yeah, there's a trust factor. And if there's trust, we will want to tell the truth, not to break the trust. It's indicative within us as human beings, right? It's a very good, good point. What would you say? Uh, let, me, let me respond to it. One thing I have found is that when teenagers lie, they will, picking up what you just said, Vicki, they will oftentimes say, I, I really don't have a, if they're, if they're talking just to me, I really don't have a good relationship. And well, I'm just going to find the easier way out. That's why I lie. It's easier. And, and, I, and the other second thing they'll say is I don't get consequences if I lie. And so it's a real tragic thing because it's talking about the lack of connectivity. So let's, let's take a different slant on this. If that's happening, how would someone who doesn't have that connectivity be able to develop the connectivity with a child? Say it's an older child, so it's a young teenager. What would you suggest as a therapist that they do? This is the parent or the caregiver to develop that trust, that care, that connectivity, the health between them. I think one of the things I've noticed is when there's a problem and you keep focusing on the problem, it only strengthens the problem. Mm. Um, So every time you catch them in a line, not that you shouldn't discipline, you absolutely should, but uh, a lot of a lot more time needs to be spent on developing the relationship and beginning to allow them to talk, not even particularly about that topic. So you lied about this. Tell me about this. And you know, as spouses, I don't know, maybe for you husbands, um, when your wife comes to you and says, "Tell me about this," you know, this thing you lied to me or you didn't tell me the whole truth. Tell me about it. Mm. You immediately freeze up, and that's the same reaction our teenagers have. Um, but beginning to increase opportunities where they can tell you about other things, safer topics, um, and the communication opens, and then leading up to, to more of those things as you're giving discipline. But we really need to focus on spending that time developing that relationship. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, would, I would agree with everything that's being said. I just think, again, as you begin to develop the relationship with the parents, so mm-hmm. I believe when the teen knows that the parents are not going to just totally throw them to the wayside, like in other words, you lied about this, and let's talk about this particular issue. It doesn't mean I don't love you. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that I'm going to think you lied about everything in the past or everything in the future. But when you lie, this is how we feel. I think a lot of times when parents speak to the children, if they do I statements, like, of course, you did this and you did, did that, but come to the, the child, well, when you lied about where you were going to be, I became very worried. Yes. I didn't know where you were. I didn't know if you were hurt. I didn't know. And, and really put the onus on yourself so the child stops necessarily being um, drawn back and being defensive. It's like, wow. All this time, I think the, the, my, my parents just sit there thinking about how they're going to punish me. But in reality, my parent was worried sick. They didn't know where I was and if, I, if they needed to come to my, my help. And so I think, you know, again, once the child begins to see, like, this is an individual whose sole purpose is not to punish me, but to care for me and to protect me, they began to think twice before they even, you know, give a lie. 
So it actually creates, the parent goes to a softened, vulnerable role. Absolutely. When you come in late, I feel worried. I feel mm -hmm. maybe even a little scared that that opens up a larger, stronger trust opportunity between the parent and the child. It seems counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. But you're saying something's really Absolutely. viable and helpful. Absolutely. Right? I think another thing is, is not to say you always lie. Because now you're defining the child as a liar. And yes. you know, nobody wants to be defined as that. You, know, you always do this. You never mm -hmm. do this. And, so, and even when they do you know, tell you, like, oh, well, I did this, to say, thank you. I really appreciate that. There, there are going to be consequences. But I appreciate that you were open to tell me that. Yes, and that will encourage truth with that. There's a single parent who's asked this question, how does a parent fulfill the mom and dad role with a parent? Yes. Oh, does she okay? Okay. Honey, Robin, could you help us, hon? Um, Lucretia's daughter needs to use the restroom, okay? Thanks okay. for telling, honey. We actually went right before we came in here. But... Yeah, that's okay. All right, thank you all, okay? Um, as a, and that's, okay, as a single parent, there's someone that was a single parent, um, how does a parent fulfill the mom and dad role? That's a, that's a tough question. Um, as a single parent, how does the parent fulfill the mom and dad role? How would you respond to that? Um, I think one great thing about you know being a churchgoer is that there's there's so many people to be resources, and you know whether you're a single father or a single mother, really drawing on those resources or your extended family, um, your daughter or son are are always going to need um, you know models of the opposite sex, and so I think part of it is taking off the pressure that I have to be both. Mm. Nobody can be both. Even even those who have both parents, sometimes we can't even do it. And so really drawing on the resources in the community, you know, that's why we have things like big brothers or you know, big sisters or you know, church with, with all the pastors and youth pastors. Okay. I would definitely agree. Um, draw on your families and friends, the community. I've, I believe it's a myth for a parent to believe that they have to be both a mom and a dad. I don't care if you're a single mom or a single dad. I think a lot of times what the parents need to do is give themselves permission to, to be okay with the fact that you're, you're not both. If you're a mom, you're a mom. Mm -hmm. And as a mom, you're going to provide, you're going to protect, you're going to teach, you're going to guide. And that's what the role of any guardian would be. But I think when you think about how can you actually fulfill both roles, you've already lost the battle. Yeah. Because that's, that's not your purpose. So. Yes. And you're Definitely. trying to be something that you're not. Yeah. And, and, and the yeah. child will pick that up. And we are good enough parents. Even my own mistakes just uh, that day or so ago, I'm a good enough parent because I'm going back and trying to continue the communication with uh, my child. I don't own my child, but the gift that this child is to me. There's another question here, thank you. I have a 16-year-old, great, it says. I have a 16-year-old. Whenever I call or text, I get no answer. When they need something, they call or text. Does that sound familiar? Okay, what should I do? I say take the cell phone away. What do you do with that? That's a very practical question. That's what this is all about, my therapist says, is what do you do with that situation? And that is so common. I've just heard that recently, too. We're all laughing because we've seen that just in our practices, I think. It's not funny. No one out there is laughing. They don't think it's funny, but we think it's funny from a thera therapist standpoint. But I'm just <laughs> laughing because I had a client tell me that about her boyfriend or her husband. So um, it's not just children that do oh, that, yes. I think. Adult children. Okay, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> But I think one of the the question that came up for me, and I don't really have an answer, is is 
where are they where they're not being able to be contacted? Um, if, if they're not contacting you and if there's not this trust where, hey, if you go somewhere, um, you're going to let me know where you're going and that kind of thing. Um, why are they having that freedom to just kind of go wherever they want? So that's just kind of my question. Mm. I don't know. I think it, it, when it comes to a child, I think that having a cell phone and a, and a page, I think that's a privilege. And I think that there's certain things that go along with that privilege. And so I would just, you know, even before giving the, um, the child the, the, the phone, it's like, these are some of the expectations with this phone. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going to pay the bill. I'm going to review the, you know, the numbers that you're calling. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm going to check in on you. I'm not going to check on on you, check in on you when you are in class. I know when your breaks are, but it's important that you respond back. And I do think there's some consequences that it can be, it should be taken. I mean, most places, I mean, the child can access access a phone if they're at school. You know, or their friends have phones if they need to get in touch with you. But I think it's a privilege. And if the guy, if the if the rules are broken, it should be a consequence. And the consequences should be very consistent. You know. What do we do? Uh, let's, let's make it even more practical. These are wonderful responses. Um, when uh, students and children will say, it's not a privilege, all my friends have it. All my friends text. Are you going to make me a nerd? Well, I'm already the nerd therapist. I know that in my home. But are you going to make the child the nerd kind of a thing? Not the nerd therapist. But what do you do when the child is saying, hey, everybody else is doing it? Um, there's, you know, even our age group of 11 to 13 in our home, they have friends that their parents are watching R-rated movies with them. Of course, we're not doing that, but that, that, that the sense of, well, what's wrong with you, mom and dad? You, particularly from a Christian standpoint, we're all the, the old fuddy-duddies kind of a thing here. So what do we do with that in a more practical way when a child moves from, which is a very good point, that it, it is something that they should respect as a gift and a privilege. What do we do with the parent that's struggling with that? Everyone else is doing this. This is an age-old problem that's very pronounced with our communication age. When I, when I think of it that way, I don't know if it's the, the child that has the issue or the concern or if it's the parent. Mm. Are you talking to me? Or no, no. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but yes, I think Really, you're right. because, I mean, <laughs> yes, you want your child to have those things that others have and have yeah. access to those things. However, you are the parent. You set the rules. It's a privilege. And yeah. so maybe the other child can go to X-rated movies or what have you, but in your home, you set the rules. And so yeah. maybe you will be the nerd parent. Yes. It's okay. Is this a self-esteem issue for parents? Self-esteem? I don't, I don't know. Self-esteem? I know a lot of parents who want to be the cool parent mm. and um, even wear like the hip clothes, which I think is kind of inappropriate. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know... But I, I think part of that is dealing with our own issues as well. Like, you know, um, what Donna's talking about is, is it something in me where I, I want my child to like me? Yes, you know, we want our children to like us, but we want that like to come out of respect for us and knowing that we care for them, not because we're going to let them do whatever they want or, you know, be the cool mom that, you know, smokes with them or those kinds of things, um, which I'm sure none of you are doing. But we want that to develop. And, like, I love the quote that, um, you know, that Don shared earlier that Mark Twain said, you know, when you're 21, you realize, oh, mm-hmm. and, you know, I think about the Bible where it says, you know, train up a child in the way he should go and he will not depart from it when he grows up. Mm-hmm. And they won't understand now, but later they will. So I'm an adult and I feel insecure and I want to be loved by my, I want to be kind of a buddy or I still want to be parent, but I want them to like me. And I'm feeling as they're growing up, they're not liking me. What do I do inside of myself? 
Do I talk to myself and say it's going to be okay? At 21, they're going to think I'm marvelous and all of that. I mean, what do we do? What do we do with help the adult here with that feeling like they want their kids to like them? I think we all have that feeling, don't we? What would you suggest to a parent if they came and asked you that? I mean, have the parents speak to some other parents and, I, and, and parents who've raised children, children who are older. Mm. And I think what it really comes down to, uh, perhaps the parent really needs to think about what does it mean to be a good parent? I mean, mm. where their responsibility? And the Bible wants us to raise up our children and train them. We want them to be healthy. We want them to um, be safe from harm. And those are what we need to, those are the core things we need to do. Yeah. It's great if the kids think we are cool. It's, it's great if they can wear our shoes and we can wear those. But we're, our responsibility is not to bring them into the world and be their friends and let them mm -hmm. do everything they want to do. Mm -hmm. We need to raise them up to be productive and healthy and Christian and things of that sort. So I think the parent may need to go to some parent groups, speak to some other parents, mm -hmm. because I think their feelings are valid. Mm -hmm. I think we've all experienced them or will experience them on one level or another. But ultimately, what are your goals or responsibility as a parent raising a healthy child. So it might be helpful to write a mission statement about my child uh, to envision what I want that child to look like years from now. If we don't do that, it's like shooting an arrow up into the sky and then moving the bullseye somewhere as it comes down. Right, mm -hmm. so it's being intentional. Absolutely, very intentional. With that. And of course, we, we're not their friend, we're their parent, but in a way, we're a friend parent, aren't we? Because some will go to a degree that will say, you know, I'm, which I think I would really agree with what you're saying, Lucretia. You know, I'm, I'm your parent, I'm not your friend, and it's almost bifurcating, separating the relationship that we, we want it to be a friend-parent relationship, do we not? Mm -hmm. So there's maybe a softening there as well. There's, a, there's a, one of the questions here I thought that was very helpful. And it's often experienced by parents. How is the best way to respond to my teenager when we ask a simple question and we get a snappy, sarcastic answer? This happens often. I think you're the only parents that have ever experienced that in the world. But truly, this is a common experience. Isn't it? We're laughing because I think we've experienced this from teens. How is the best way? How's the best way to respond to my teenager when we ask a simple question and we get a snappy, sarcastic answer? In fact, one of the reasons that the parents stop talking to their teenagers is because of this very thing. It's very painful. You know, I'm just asking just a simple uh, question. I know I've worked with people that cannot even ask their child a question without them screaming at them. It gets to a very violent level. But what would be your suggestion to uh, the parent in this situation? I think the first is not to snap back. <laughs> um, and really to, to talk about, like Lucretia was saying, the, the I position. You know, when you snap back at me, this is how I feel. And then this is how I see it impacting our relationship. Mm -hmm. And if that child values the relationship at all, you know, in any way, um, they're going to hear you if, if you can make it about yourself. And then ask, you know, so how, do, how does it feel for you? when we have these kinds of communication and how can we make it better and I think especially for teenagers um, they love to be empowered you know to feel like you know I'm part of this relationship it's not a top-down you know you tell me what to do but how can we work on this together and I, and I see that all the time and and when they begin to experience that with their parents there's just this joy and this tremendous like sense of um, I'm worth something because you're letting me be part of this so there's a development piece where we have to move from critiquing or criticizing our children to supporting them. And one way to support them, again, is not to become overly anxious. That's very difficult to do. When they say something, you go, oh, you're kidding. Oh, um, you know, you're responding with a lot of emotion 
because it's scary or it creates fear. If we acknowledge our feeling to our basic experience to our child who may be a teenager, budding young adult, that he or she will see our care for them in their development. Is that what you're saying? And just to be patient with them, hmm. you know, it, it, and to tell yourself, this doesn't mean I'm a bad parent. I think some of us, like when, when those kind of interactions take place, um, not only are we thinking you're a bad child, but also thinking, am I doing something wrong? You know, am I a bad parent? And, and knowing that's part of the development um, and being patient with them, continuing to be consistent. And when they look back, they're going to remember, you know, my mom and my dad, they were rock solid and they were, they were consistent in the way they approached me. Their love for me was solid mm. and they'll appreciate that. I just want to say something about that, that teen anger. I've, I've seen it I mean, over and over, and I hope we don't sound like we're minimizing it, because I've experienced it, and it's, it's, it's tough. And it makes me think of just a personal example I had. Um, there's a significant age difference between myself and my brother and my sister. Actually, it was 11 years between me and my brother and sister. So I'm here in San Diego, away from home, which is you know central California, and I noticed when I would go home, my brother, who was like 14 at the time, he was... He was, I mean, people, my mom and my sister were walking around like they were on eggshells. Like he was like the angry man of the house. Mm. You, no one wanted to say anything to him. And I'm watching this. I don't, like, what's going on here? I'm like, are you kidding? And you can't say anything to him. He gets mad. He's angry. He snaps. And I'm like, no, it's, it's, it's there's something going on. But he won't talk to anyone. Mm. And so, you know, I tried to talk to him when I was at home. And, of course, he's not snapping at me because I'm the older sister. He wants me to see him in a positive light. Mm -hmm. But what I did is when I came home, I talked to my mother. And I'm like, how does it make you feel? And she goes, like, I did something wrong or that I'm not reaching him. Mm. So after I spoke to her, I wrote, like, this four-page letter in her voice. Mm. And this is something I, I wanted to do. And I had her read the letter and make sure, you know, that she felt the way I wrote it. And I said, now I'm going to send it to you. And I want you to make, like, 20 copies of it. And I said, and when he comes in the house, I want you to hand him this in an envelope and said, please read this when you have time. I said, but the reason I want you to make 20 copies is because he might tear up the first few. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so but I said, but eventually he's going to read this. And so eventually he, he read like maybe the fifth or sixth copy. And I said, well, what did he say when he read it? He came to her and said, you didn't write this. Lucretia wrote this, right? You know? <laughs> and then she says... She, um, she, you know, she wrote it, she helped me write it in my voice. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of opened up communication for them. Then she found out that it truly wasn't anything going on in the home. Mm -hmm. um, his father, who my mother divorced, he was angry with him because mm -hmm. he wasn't spending time with him. And he was hearing things about his dad that he didn't like. And he was just, he didn't know what to do with his anger. And so the people who are closest to him, he was lashing out at, which mm -hmm. was my mom and my sister. So I'm saying all that to say that even though it's very, it's not, it's very challenging to deal with, a lot of times it may have nothing to do with you. So yeah. when Vicky says don't take it personal, it seems kind of hard, but it really may have something to do with something totally outside the home. But patience and, and grace and consistency, tell them how you feel and what have you, can, can kind of penetrate that hard wall. Mm -hmm. And naturally, uh, children, as they grow up and mature, they are trying to, we call it, individuate or become their own person. So they're going to actually isolate naturally and normally from us. So it's probably important to continue, regardless of the age, if you can or if we can, to continue to develop moments like playing games or doing, I mean, doing something that they might enjoy, hang out time, whatever it might be. 
uh, that they're not completely embarrassed that I'm their dad kind of a thing, you know, behind closed doors maybe or something where they're not out in public. But is to create the space because they're tending to isolate normally and naturally to become their own person. But I've, I've always seen this in the most angry, to me it was the most angry part of the hospital, these teenagers, everyone that we stayed with and hung in there with, many of them went back to their parents and where it wasn't working. They want to have a good relationship with their parents. Remember when I mentioned just a moment ago, for 20 years I've asked students at the university level, when you're in a game or, or doing something at college, who do you look for in the stands? Without a doubt, all hands go up, my parents. So even teenagers, when it looks as though we're taking it personally, and they may not like us at that moment, know that even though they don't like us, they need us. And they innately know that they, they do. Vicki, were you going to add something? I just want to make one more comment about that. Is I think it's also really important to allow them to have other important people in their lives, mm -hmm. like you know, an aunt or so, a mentor or something like that. And, and the reason I say that is in all my years of high school ministry um, or junior high ministry, um, there are a lot of teenagers, both male and female, that express themselves in that way. And later we fi find out that they were molested or something like that, which is something they didn't feel like they could tell their parents. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, but then we're able to you know, hear that and then take that back to the parents and really start that communication. Um, and if you provide kind of those kind of people in their lives, it, it's more possible, or you know, a therapist or something like that, that those kind of things might come out. And so. Yeah, forgot to mention that Vicky. Um, her husband is a full-time pastor, so she's a pastor's wife and a therapist, so they have significant background in ministering to teenagers, both at the middle school, junior high, and high school age, so uh, thank you for that. Here was a question. By the way, we, we have a little bit of time left. If you have a question, you want to raise your hand without uh, a card, we'll bring a microphone around to you. If, if you have a question or you want something answered a little more in depth, here's a question about, it's a follow-up to what we were just talking. My eight-year-old has difficulty dealing with her feelings. This sounds like it's really piggybacking what we just talked about. My eight-year-old has difficulty with her feelings of anger or frustration. I don't know if telling her to punch a pillow is the best way to help her. How can I guide her in better managing her emotions? So I think it's a good question. Do we teach the child to get the anger out by physically expressing it, or should they express it without a physical expression attached to it? I know it's a much broader question than that. What, do you, what would you advise at that point as a therapist? I think it varies. Um, I know I've actually facilitated um, actually several anger management groups for children um, like seven to nine-year-olds, and it was specifically called anger management group. And these are kids that the teachers would say would, would fight or hit a lot and things of that sort. Or the parents would say the same thing. They did the same thing with their siblings or friends at home. And um, I think there's many different ways for children to, to express themselves. We would do things where um, we'd have them draw. You know, we'd say, you know, draw it. Here's a piece of paper. You know, put two um, X on it, four different spots. Now, in this spot, I want you to draw how you feel when you're happy, any kind of picture you want, colors or what have you. This one, how you feel when you're mad. This mm -hmm. is how you feel. And, and, then, I mean, and then they get to tell each other, well, tell the other kids about it. We also have them put on plays, mm -hmm. like how to resolve, like how to resolve a problem. Mm 
And so they got to act out with puppets um, using clay. So there's really many different ways. And there's always things like karate and things of that sort where the kid can be more physical, but it's in a safe and structured environment mm -hmm. and in learning discipline at the same time. So there's not just one way that a child can express their anger and in a mm -hmm. safe way. There's many different ways. Um, and I think sometimes you need to take it at two levels. One is, you know, I work with a lot of kids where um, they're not going to be able to sit there and tell you about their feelings. Mm -hmm. There's just they're just so pent up, especially kids with ADHD or things like that. And so on one level, you need to help them get all that stuff out. And more than perhaps punching a pillow, going running around a track or something like that may be a little bit more helpful. And then coming back to that deeper level of helping them identify their feelings. I think if you go online, you can find you know like little funny faces of of all the different feelings and you know which one of these do you feel. Um, but what I've really found helpful with my own kids is talking about myself when I'm angry. Mm -hmm. And you know, sometimes I'm human, I'll get angry, you know, even as a pastor's wife. <laughs> um, and you know, kids, when they, when they feel the anger of a parent, usually immediately, um, you know, they, they get afraid. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I just tell my parents, uh, my kids, um, mommy's feeling really angry right now. And I might be angry at their dad, let's say. No, mommy's angry at dad right now. It's not you, it's me. And it's going to be okay because mommy and daddy are going to talk about it and we're going to be able to work it out. Yes. And even though my kids are young, they're like, as soon as they hear it's not about you, it's me, they're like, oh yeah, it's your problem. Okay, <laughs> we're going to go good. play. <laughs> and they need to hear that, you know, that, you know, anger, um, it's not always going to be about them. I have my feelings, but I'm going to work them out. And so can you. Now, what children do, and this is where it gets really uh, unfortunate, is if you don't do what you and your husband do, Vicki, what does the child do when you're, say, say you're angry about something and not the child? What will the child do almost regardless of the age? I mean, immediately they're going to feel like there's something wrong with them and that yes. they caused it. And um, just kind of, I just want to use an example, but my dad used to be very angry all the time. And, you know, I would always think it's about me. Mm -hmm. um, but as I grew up, I'm like, oh, no, it was just him. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. And when, when they begin to hear that, there's a release, I feel like, that they can kind of individuate, like Don was talking about, and, and grow up for themselves, rather than always kind of being under the umbrella of that fear. And that's probably one of the key things that, not in your case, apparently, but it can rip and tear at the, the self-esteem of the child. When they don't know what the parent is mad or upset about, they will always default to it's their problem. This is why when there's a divorce, you've heard this. When there's a divorce, the child always believes at the very core. It doesn't matter what the age. I have 23, 24-year-olds that come into my office all the time at the university, and they will say that I still feel as though at the core it was me that caused this. So it's very important what you're saying is to model openly expressing that I'm feeling frustrated at this point. I'm going to work it out with your dad here. I'm, you were saying I was, I'm, I'm upset at your dad. However, we love each other and we're going to work this out. So you're modeling conflict resolution. How many of us live in a conflict-free world? Probably not one of us, right? It's full of conflict, right? Resolving conflict at different levels, or it goes underground. If you live in one that's, there's no conflict, it's underground somehow. So look at this, thank you for that. Did you want anything else? But okay, is listen to this one. This is a little different approach. We're wanting to get to these questions here. How do I delicately approach the subject of personal hygiene with a preteen who doesn't take care of his body, but cares tremendously what other people think? All right, 
Some of us are laughing because we were there one time. How do I delicately approach the subject of personal hygiene with a preteen who doesn't take good care of his body but cares tremendously what other people think? What does my therapist say about that? <laughs> well, I've worked with a lot of teens um, at residential facilities or just counseling and things of that sort, and it is very, you do, do need to tackle that um, subject very delicately. But, wow. Let's see, in a residential facility, things that we would do, um, when we would go shopping, you know, we would really encourage the young person to choose their favorite deodorant or their favorite bar of soap. And, you know, versus selecting their form, what smells good to you? And how do you mm. like, it? oh, you like coconut, all this. And then we would say, you know, as a young lady or as a young man, usually we'd do it very separate, we'd do it separately. As young ladies, you know, it's really important that we do th these things on a regular basis. Even if we feel that we don't smell bad, we wash on a regular basis. Mm. And so we just made it more of a routine mm. versus, you know, you're really smelling. Mm -hmm. uh, but there were some times when I had to, you know, taps one and pull them to the side and say, you look, you look great today, your hair is very nice, but I, I, I think that maybe you need to change that blouse and go wash up. I think you just have to address it and just say, you know, if I can smell it, your girlfriends who really think highly of you, they can smell it too. They're not likely to tell you because they want to remain your friend or they don't want you to be mad at them, but they truly can smell it. So go ahead and, you know, discreetly go clean yourself. But I think you, you do need to address it. But if it's in the home, I think I'm, I'd be just more direct about it. With my little one, she's, she's little, and we do things. When I was raised, my mom used to call them wash-ups. So if we were leaving the house for any reason, we did a wash-up. And so she always did it, so I did. I mimicked her. And so I have my little one do the same thing. And so I, I, I'm assuming as she gets older and pulls away, and I, mm -hmm. she's not in the bathroom with me, what have you, um, these issues will come mm. up, and I'll just have to say, hey, mo you know, mommy can smell you, so if I can smell you, someone else can, and I would prefer to tell you than have someone else tell you. You say that so beautifully. If we could just take that and download it, because most of us grew somebody went, you don't smell so good. That's what we heard from people, not this kind, gentle, assertive way, but that's very helpful. We have to be assertive is what you're saying, and I'm not making fun of what you said because it was so powerful, that we need to be able to be assertive, and that takes self-esteem to do that. Because we may have a reaction the first time. Like you said, your brother, you made 20 because probably the first five potentially or six or even 10 were torn up. But maybe on the 11th, he settled down and read it. Okay. What can, this is a follow-up of another question, but I found it here. What can a parent do if your 18-year-old keeps his hair messy most of the time and gridlocks are beginning to form and he refuses to cut it? Excuse me, did I read that? Oh, it was, yeah, I, I, obviously it has a G, but it's dreadlocks. Thank you very much. Our, we have some of our junior high teachers right here that teach this age level all the time. So, obviously I never had one. So, but anyway, what do we do? What can a parent do if your 18-year-old keeps his hair messy? The dreadlocks are beginning to form and he refuses to cut it. I think my first thought is um, pick your battles. <laughs> you know? okay. Pick your battles. Um, if this is something that's really important to you and you're willing to set down some consequences, like not washing his laundry or even you know things like that, um, but maybe this is something that you don't want to do that with. Maybe there are other things that are more important. So again, I just say pick your battles. That's the first thing that came to mind. Mm. Pick your battles. I mean, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. is he getting dreadlocks and he's smoking ganji on the side? I mean, I mean, what's going on? What's going on with this? Is it just a hair thing? Are you embarrassed by it, or is he embarrassed by it? 
Is it affecting the way people are responding to him when he goes for job interviews? And so he's not getting that job that he wants or, you know, so I think mm -hmm. choose your battles. Okay. Our child says, I hate myself once in a while. Should we be concerned? And what should we say to this? It's a younger child. They, they put in parentheses. Our child says, quote, I hate myself once in a while. Should we be concerned? And what should we say to this? Is that a common experience for children and adolescents? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I hear that a lot. Um, and if it's just kind of, you know, infrequent and they kind of get over it, you know, it's just something you want to just keep talking to them about. Um, but it's, I, I think it's something you want to sit there and talk with them about, not, not in a focused, anxiety-focused way, because that's only going to make them, you know, kind of just be quiet and, and not want to talk about it. But, you know, just kind of, oh, really? Well, what's going on for you? And, and just let them talk about it. And you might find, well, um, my, my little daughter, she, she comes to me after um, church. Every, every week after Sunday, she says, you know, the kids cry because they don't want me to come to class. And I know absolutely that's not true. <laughs> um, but, you know, I just sit there and talk with her about it. And... Um, some weeks she says it, some weeks she doesn't. But I think it's, it's part of them beginning to think about me and the world and how other people view me and, and just starting to talk to them about that. You know, um, How do we experience how other people view us? How does that affect us? And starting to talk to them about self-esteem and things like that I think is important. Mm -hmm. We probably have to talk about our own self-esteem with that as well. Okay. Again, if you have any questions that you have, uh, we have a few minutes left here. You could raise your hand and we'll bring a mic from by here's a good question there's research on both sides of this this question our children our children are 12 and 10 years old i still use one two three to get them to obey without the one two three they take at least three prompts to respond and obey is the one two three method appropriate at their age or should they be just responding on first prompt from us it's a great question isn't it I think that's cute. <laughs> Does it work? I'm like, wow. Okay. Um, what it makes me think about is um, thinking in terms of just disciplining children, how sometimes parents will wait until they get really, really fed up with the child. And it's like, you know what? You've done it. You're on punishment or I'm taking this away or what have you. And I think what it teaches the child is that I can mess up and do this this many times mm. until mom or dad blows. And then mm -hmm. I, I pretty much know when they're gonna blow, so I can either stop right before that, or I can push them over the edge and you know, and take the consequences. Worth it. Watch the circus, yeah. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I, so I think that the child, they, they, they learn you. They know how to push your buttons. They know how far to go. So when it comes to the one, two, three, I think, personally, at the age of ten or twelve, you've been doing it for a long, a long time. They, they probably know, mm -hmm. you know, how you're gonna sound when you say two and what have you. And, and I think it, it's kind of a game. Mm -hmm. So I think at 10 or 12, the child already knows. You said it. You meant it. You didn't mean it after you said three. You meant it when you said it. And so I think, I, I, personally, I don't think that the one, two, three is necessary. They're just, they're, they're, they're playing you. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm, I'm just thinking at that age, if um, they are doing it at three, then they can do it at one. <laughs> and, you know, I, I've been teaching my daughter lately, you know, immediate obedience. And not that, you know, I'm putting all these imposed rules upon her, but part of it, you know, just for me, again, you know, just as a Christian is I really want to raise her so that she'll obey God uh, when she hears from him, mm -hmm. when, he, when she hears from him, and not 
okay, but not today, you know, not this month, not this year. And, um, and part of it, I think at that age is also, you can begin to talk to your kids about the why behind why I'm telling you this. Mm-hmm. And I've even started that with my kids, even though they're so, they're so little, immediate obedience. But, uh, but then I'm gonna tell you why, um, why I, I'm telling you to do this. And I'm gonna let you tell me how you feel about that. Mm-hmm. And maybe you don't like it. That's okay, I understand. And, and that's okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I, I'm still gonna expect that of you because I'm training you up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That obedience feels safe secure. I know my mom will be wanting the best for me in that. Here's a mother that's saying something It looks like a little different. My, yes. You have a question? Yes. I have an 18-year-old. Great kid. But she constantly forgets. Mm. I ask her to do things around the house occasionally and she's always willing um, with a joyful heart but never does it. Mm. And her reason is always the same. She forgot. She mm. borrows things occasionally, and she forgets to put them back. So her intentions are, are, are well. So what are some creative consequences <laughs> to help... Um, Change the behavior? Yes. What are your thoughts about that? It's a great question. I just have a story that one of my supervisors told me. Uh, my mom and I, both of us, always lose our keys. Um, or my glasses. I'm always, they're, they're on my head. I'm like, honey, where's my glasses? <laughs> or where's the car keys? And she was telling me a story, I guess she was similar, um, that she would always forget her keys. And so one day, you know, she's calling her husband and she's saying, oh, I lost my keys. And he said, because usually he would come and, you know, bring them for her. And he said, well, I'm not going to come this time. And after that, she never lost her keys again. <laughs> and I, I've experienced that myself. And part of it is, I think, you know, if she forgets, sometimes our kids will forget their homework, right, at home. And then they call you and say, hey, I need my homework or something like that. Letting them deal with the consequences. And I've seen that again and again. When people are forgetful, it's usually because somebody's cleaning up their mess. Mm-hmm. So. Pain instructs. Mm-hmm. I was thinking the same thing. And, and my question would be, does she only forget when she's supposed to do things around the home? Yeah, yeah, okay. Ah. Yeah, it, it sounds like convenience forgetting because, you know, perhaps the consequences are not, you know, swift or strong and she's willing to deal with them. So I think, you know, perhaps a consequence along with the forgetfulness might be helpful. And of course, a consequence that fits the forgetfulness, not something extreme or what have you. And so the younger the child, you can uh, permit the consequences because the older the child, the consequences weigh in much more deeply and can be much more painful. So it's better to start this earlier than later is what you're suggesting, if I'm hearing that. Okay. Um, My almost 13-year-old daughter seems to get mad anytime I ask her about school, friends, etc. I really want to be a part of her life, but she seems to want only rides and money. Help, it says. All right? Okay. How do you respond to that? Oh, you're, so, you're one of many. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, yeah. But I, I think part of it is, on one side is, again, why do I need to be so involved in my child's life? Um, is it because, you know, I, I'm just concerned for her safety? Or is it because... I need her, hmm. you know, I need that relationship with her, maybe because my relationship with my husband isn't so great, or I don't have too many friends. Um, we want to look at that first. That might not be, but, you know, um, that will cause our children to draw away, especially when they're going through that preteen, teenage years, because they're feeling that need from us at the same time they're needing to kind of go out into the world. 
Um, on the other hand, it's, again, are you putting the consequences? If they're not being responsible at home, if they're not being respectful in the relationship, are you still giving them money to go out with their friends and do everything they want? Or is there, are you teaching them how to have a trusting and respectful relationship? So you're bringing up a very, very good point, and this is really an important one that am I soothing my own anxiety or am I helping the child to mature? And that's, you can only answer that question if we are becoming aware of our feelings. Like if I'm feeling over anxious that my child needs to be at this game or to be in this event, is that my anxiety or is it the child's? If it's my anxiety and I'm overcompensating and making it possible for no consequence to take place, then is it possible my child is receiving anxiety from me? So we have a double problem. One is they're not following through, taking responsibility, and now they're managing my projected potential, my projected anxiety on them. Uh, that's where the old adage, I grew up to be just like you, you know, the cats in the cradle, and that concept where we own that. That's a very important concept. Could you help to kind of uh, share a little more about that concept of a parent who projects their anxiety on the child and that they're related to the consequence. I think this is a really important dialogue. Um, I think the two things I've, I most see is one, a parent who, who's lonely, hmm. a parent who doesn't have you know, enough secure relationships in their own life, and so there's a lot of you know, energy being focused on the child, and that might look like you know, really over-caring, really being you know, overly loving. Not that we can ever love our children too much, but um, where that's more out of my need to keep you. Um, on the other side, I've also seen a lot of where there's a lot of anxiety projected because you're turning out just like this person. You know, you're turning out just like my brother. You're turning out just like your dad or things like that. And again, identifying that child and projecting that um, and not letting them be free to kind of be who they are and figure out who they are. Okay. Thank you very much. I know we have just, we have a question here. If we can bring the mic right up real quickly because we're talking about a very important issue of how we may project onto, projecting meaning that my child takes, it's actually interjection in a way, takes and becomes me, my own feeling, rather than them becoming their own person. Yes. I wanted to ask if you would go a little bit further on if I have noticed um, my daughter trying to, um, what'd you say about soothing the anxiety or... Um, I, I just Where lost I, the word. I think soothing the anxiety and taking care of myself care so of I, my get rid of my, I can get rid of my anxiety, so to yes. speak. Yes, how do you go back and do that repair work hmm. when I witnessed her trying, now that I'm looking back listening to you, her trying to take care of my anxiety, I'd like to go back and do that repair work mm -hmm. and take ownership in that. And what does that look like? Beautiful how question. That? That's a great question. I just kind of want to affirm the fact that you're even saying that, because mm. I think even stating that is a huge thing, and even telling that to your daughter, hey, I've noticed that, and then beginning to kind of, um, whenever you notice her doing that, say, no, I'm okay, I can do this, I'm fine, or I feel okay, or hey, I'm going to go talk to you know my friend or whatever it is, and in the beginning, um, she's not going to like that, <laughs> because so much of her identity is probably built up on being there for not just you, but maybe her friends and everybody around her. It's going to feel really uncomfortable. Um, but as you continue to be there for her, but at the same time, you know, have your feelings and kind of have, you know, separation of this is me and this is you, she'll come to this next level after the discomfort of freedom 
oh, okay, I, I can, you know, kind of go out and venture out. And if mom doesn't pull me back when I start to do that, I'm going to begin to trust myself. And then she'll just keep going. And mm-hmm. how amazing that she has a mom who cares as mm-hmm. much as she do. Mm-hmm. Yes, great response. And is it okay to, to uh, actually struggle with the fact that we make mistakes or that we uh, actually pushed our feelings onto the child and to say, take a time and say, you know, honey, I'm really sorry. I, I, in this situation, remember when this happened? I really felt this way and I think I miscommunicated with you. You may have received it a different way and this is really what I was feeling. Or if I did project, I think that's what the suggestion was. I'm really sorry for that. I'm working on not to do that. What that does is that infuses a high level of empathy into your child. The greatest gift we can give a child is for them to have self-empathy. They'll share it with others. It's the most strongest, it's the, excuse me, it's the strongest biblical principle. Do unto others as you have them do unto you. Show empathy to others. And if you don't build, or if I don't build into my child, that empathy, we have a hand up right over here, an empathy that what they'll do is they'll go into a destructive, we tend to go into a destructive way. And so it's beautiful that a mother would be asking that. I think we have a hand up right over here that might be uh, responding to that. You want to add anything while the mic is moving over there at all? Okay. All right, we'll wait for the microphone. We're just about done. Just a few minutes here. Is that, is that similar then? We have two kids close in age. So if one is getting in trouble acting up and the other one sees that, the one who's not in trouble becomes mommy's best helper. Mm. Is that an area that I need that I would need to say, oh no, I'm okay here. Because I love the cooperative child. Right, that right. Moment, we all do like, don't we? well now I need some help. Thank you. But that's <laughs> right. probably that's so I'm hearing that that's probably not healthy for that child who's all of a sudden become cooperative. Right. I think you're moving into parentification where the child actually is trying to do adult work. I think the best, uh, a more helpful method would be to isolate the one child who's the very cooperative. Thank you, honey, for this. This is really between your brother and me and make that a very uh, personal uh, space place for that. We have another question or thought right here. Just to piggyback off that, I have the same, but my kids are much different in age. Um, my son is the rebellious one and often is in trouble a lot, whereas my daughter is my little angel. She, mm-hmm. she can't do any wrong. So he starts to feel like I don't love him as much as her because she's mm-hmm. getting the praise because right. she's doing things right, whereas he's always in trouble. So how do yeah. I balance, make him feel just as loved as she does? Because I love question. them both the same. But she gets more praise yeah, than we can, does. We can, we can love children the same. We can't like them the same. We like children very differently, but we can love them the same, right? So we want to start there if we can. But what's your response? And then we are going to have to stop. We're just about out of time. Very good question. Let's try to respond to it if we can. I think you, you've, you've said it already. You know, make sure that you reiterate to your son that, listen, the reason why I'm dealing with you on this issue because this is something that you did. And, you know, she's not going to pay the consequence for that because she didn't do it, as well as let her know that, I love you and I also love your brother, but you know, I'm treating you this particular way or we're doing this because you've earned this or what have you. I think you said it best. Make sure that the, the children know that the issue is isolated between wh- whichever child has you know, done something wrong or what have you. Yeah, you said it. yeah that, this is a challenging thing. We call it alliance. And the alliance is that every child wants to know they're loved the most. 
So when they don't get equal treatment, at least in their eyes, they go into high anxiety. So it's very important what you just said. And it's all about that they really want to be in right relationship. It's the way God made us that we want to be in right relationship. Would you join me in thanking our great panel here this evening? I, I thank them. Um, can you see why um, I'm privileged? I get to work with these two fine individuals. You can see why I'm privileged to do the therapy work I do at our center. And uh, these are uh, outstanding therapists. And thank you for coming tonight and joining us. By the way, this is a great way for us to introduce therapists. If you do not have uh, a therapist and you're looking for one, you can see the heart of these individuals, and they will be available at the back of the, the auditorium this evening as we leave. Just before we leave, let me just mention our next uh, Enjoying a Debt-Free Relationship. That's next, the first uh, Wednesday of March. If you'll notice, Jerry Troyer is going to be our presenter. You've heard him before. He's outstanding. Uh, he actually has his own nonprofit. He was in banking for 22 years, a nonprofit consulting, as well as our other therapist. And John Richardson, who's also a CPA, he will be joining us. It's going to be a rich opportunity. One last slide, if I can. The reason I'm putting this up is Dr. Jim Garlow took our booklet for our Two Become One class. And he got so excited that he asked, he asked me, could we extend the time for anyone that wants to join the Two Become One class? If by chance you have someone that would like to join, we're going to close it this Sunday. I've never done this before, but he was enthused about our booklet that was put together uh, and paid for by one of our couples who paid for this. It was very expensive. It's multicolored. And it's work, work I put together for about 20 years. But if you have someone, it's at, at the 930 hour upstairs on the fourth floor and we even have scholarshiping for it, $60 for the year. So I wanted to mention that, but uh, let's have a word of prayer, and I thank you for coming out this evening. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of parenting. I shared this with our children just this last week, that my greatest role on this planet, other than serving you and being a good husband, is raising, trying to, in God's timing and God's will and God's grace, raising two healthy children. It's a wonderful privilege. And wherever we are on this journey, some have grandchildren. Some are thinking tonight, well, I have some regrets. Not one of us is without regrets in parenting. We're not perfect. But we are good enough by your grace. You can undo that which we wish could be done. And you can bring grace and strength and hope and encouragement. May that be the case in every person who is in this auditorium, who is listening to the sound of my voice and your grace this evening. We thank you. We bless you this night. And we count it a privilege to know that we were here on your account. You love us that much. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you and have a great, great evening.